Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 25. Let's hear God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now, he was obliged to release to them at the, at, at the least, at the feast, pardon me, one prisoner. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, answered, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices, asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted, and he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Let's pray. O Lord God, we ask your your help as we consider the last days of Christ's life and As we think upon these things this morning, we pray that your spirit would work through and with your word to bring about our edification, praise, and glory in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that he would be made manifest and glorified in our presence. In Jesus' name, amen. We have just got done, we have just finished reading and reciting together the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, 
creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. These are things that we affirm week in, week out, week after week. We will see here in this passage this morning the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, suffering under Pontius Pilate. There is this group, and maybe we're wondering who is this, then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate. And we know who they are. They were identified in verses 67 through 71. It's the whole council of the elders of the people. The entire Sanhedrin, together with the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, comprised of the scribes, the Pharisees, as well as the chief priests and the high priests. And they are all there in the council chamber. A large group of 70 plus, perhaps 80, 90, 100 persons. They are all there and they have brought Jesus to Pilate. They are determined that they will bring about his death. They have long ago decided, we remember in the earlier chapters of Luke's Gospel, they have decided they can no longer tolerate this person. They cannot tolerate this individual who was undermining their religious authority in Israel. He was pointing out their inconsistencies. He was pointing out their hypocrisies. And he had actually sounded out biblical Old Testament judgment against unrighteous shepherds. He had pointed out how they were ungodly in their misuse of the temple funds, as well as the ways in which they were making a den of thieves uh, out of the temple of God. And we were, uh, Josephus tells us, in fact, that the high priestly class and the chief priests and the high priests actually received their income from the selling of beasts uh, for sacrifice in the temple of the Lord, in the house of God. It was these individuals who were hypocrites and who had the designs of murder and of death upon Christ. They were the ones who had already decided his guilt, and they were that then now obligated to go before Pilate, bring Jesus before Pilate for the sentence to be carried out. They were prevented from crucifixion. They were not permitted to bring about capital punishment, the death of the accused, without the, the permission and the express participation of uh, and the, the providing of the instruments uh, of the Roman authorities. And Pilate was the man who was, in fact, in charge. He is a prelate who served for about seven years, was eventually brought to an end because of his policies. He ran into an issue because uh, in Syria he had... Uh, he was to intervene as a peacemaker in, uh, and not, not, not the kind of peacemaker we may be used to today, but a peacemaker that would walk in with a sword and start killing people until peace was settled. That was the kind of peacemaker he was. He was an ungodly man. He was a wicked man in many, many ways. And that morning, just before he had, in fact, Jesus had come before him, and perhaps even during the time when Jesus was about to stand before him, he received a message from his wife, Matthew chapter 27. And that message says, have nothing to do with this righteous man. And so Pilate is, he's got to be wondering, who is this? And of course, Herod is, 
filled also within the same passage, filled with a curiosity about Christ, who has now been brought to him when Pilate sends him over to him. Uh, Herod has a Galilean um, jurisdiction, whereas Pilate does not. His is Judean. <clears throat> well, they have brought the, uh, Jesus to, to Pilate. And it's interesting to hear their complaints. What specifically did they determine, uh, on the basis of what did they determine that Jesus should die? We look back in, in chapter, uh, in chapter, in chapter 22, in verse 67. They ask him explicitly, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, and here's the issue. Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, yes. I am. Then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. So they are bringing Jesus to Pilate because he has claimed that he is the eternal God. Not just that he's the Messiah. Not just that he is the Savior sent by God to save them from their sins. The lamb that was slain, no. But they are offended that he has said, I am. And in claiming that reality, he is claiming that he is a divine person, not a human person, a divine person who has come to take away the sins of the world. And in a unique identity, the second person of the Trinity, the one who stands before the throne of God and has done so for all eternity as the eternal Son. He is the one who dwells in unapproachable glory with God the Father and God the Spirit. They understand this. They know this. Reject any claim from liberal scholars and academics who say Jesus never claimed divinity. Well, he just did. And his audience acknowledges that, recognizes that, and is ready to put him to death for that. But when they come to Pilate, they are not in any way claiming we are offended that he has claimed that he is divine. Look at their complaints with me. They are very, very different. We'll look at them in a moment. They've changed them significantly, and they identify. They say it in verse 2. We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They didn't say, he's saying himself that he is Christ, the Son of God. They didn't say that. In John's Gospel, we have uh, the addition of further discussion and of uh, further accusation that has been made. In John chapter 18, 28, it says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And let's, let's see the hypocrisy of the, the, the Jewish leaders who are accusing Christ. They themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And so it would make them unclean physically if they entered the praetorium. They're not considering that it would make them unclean to lie, to deceive, and to purpose in their heart to destroy the eternal Son of God. 
They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves, judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. And so they accuse Jesus of being one who has misled the nation. He's misleading. The word means to pervert, to distort, to turn aside from the purposes of God, to corrupt. And so they're saying he is a corrupt, distorted, turner aside, and a pervert of the things of God. Can you imagine accusing the Son of God of these things? But this is what they have done. They have accused him of perverting, essentially, the plan of God for salvation. The plan and the intentions of God according to his will. According to the revealed will of God's word. And yet, we see Isaiah 52 and 53. And and can we not with clear eyes say, Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of, of every servant song, of every messianic psalm, of every messianic promise throughout the entirety of God's word from Genesis 3.15 all the way to the end of Malachi. Affirmed and proclaimed and glorified and explicitly stated to be so in the New Testament. And yet these men, who are the religious leaders of God's people, who pretend to know the will of God, are saying, He's distorting He's corrupt. He's perverted the things of God. And yet they are men who have perverted the things of God to such an extent that they are blind. And Jesus has referred to them as blind shepherds. Wicked shepherds. Perverse men. If they explicitly, they, 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 they further accuse him, secondly, of forbidding tribute to Caesar. Uh, recently we read, was it not, a, a short time ago when Jesus confronted with the coin, uh, seeking to undo him and to test him. Did they not come to Jesus and say, this is the temple tax, this is the, the tax required of the Roman authorities, should we pay this tax to Caesar? And Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. Hold up a coin whose face is on it, Caesar. And then Jesus said what he said. Jesus has not forbidden tribute to Caesar. In fact, they are the ones who have sought to not pay that tribute. Jesus has said, you give unto God what is God's, and you give unto the government what the government requires, and what God, according to his providence, has required as well. Thirdly, they claim that he is the Christ, a king. At no point did they ask him, Are you the king of the Jews? No. They ask him if he is the Christ. They ask him if he is the son of God. And of course they understand that kingly role. But they know that if they use that word and if they put that out there, he is claiming to be a king, that Pilate has to do something about that. Because Pilate is the one who is going to defend Caesar's right in authority and kingship and rule. Notice how it has changed. It has passed from, are you the son of God then? You have said, yes, I am. It has passed from, this man claims to be the son of God, to, he's a misleader and a pervert of the things of God. 
he forbids tribute to Caesar and he claims that he's a king. Everything religious has turned into everything political. Their accusations are purely political. So that as they manipulate the as they manipulated the process of Christ's examination, they are now going to manipulate Pilate. So that he almost his hands are tied and he almost can do nothing else but give them into him into their care or into their destructive hands. Pilate normally is in Caesarea. <clears throat> and this week he's in Jerusalem because it's Passover. It's time for the Passover. He's the Roman authority, the peacekeeper. He has a very difficult history with the Jews. They hate him. He hates them. And in fact, he has been brutal and dishonest. He has taken money from the temple treasury. Can you imagine that? Here are the plates. We'll, we've already had a collection during the service. We've rendered our, our tithes and our offerings to God. Can you imagine if if Mayor Sarno or the chief of police uh, here in, in Springfield walked in through the door, uh, the unlocked door, and walked to the front and took the plates and emptied them into a bag and walked off, well, we'd have a fit. <clears throat> and, of course, they would never do that. We assume better things of them. But that's essentially what Pilate did. He went into the temple treasury, took the money from there, and then create and then built an aqueduct with the use of the funds that were in there. This was brutal. It was dishonest and it was horrible. It was wicked. And they hated him for it. Pilate affirms three different times in verse 4, then again in verse 14 and 15, later on in verse 22. He says, look, he is innocent. And he says further, Herod found him innocent as well. He is not guilty of anything deserving of death. There are multiple questions that he has asked Jesus. He's uncomfortable exchanges. There are back and forth with the Jews. And of course, Herod takes Jesus, asks him many questions. Jesus does not answer him at all. And then, of course, he abuses Jesus and sends him back for further judgment. By way of explanation this morning, we have three significant theological propositions concerning Jesus Christ and unbelief. And I want to share them with you this morning. Things that we come to a conclusion over from this passage this morning. First of which is Jesus, the Christ of God, is enduring the, pun, the, the, the judgment of Pilate and the condemnation and judgment of the Jewish leaders so that you, so that we can stand before the judgment of God. Did you understand that? Let me, let me repeat that. Jesus, the Christ of God, the Messiah, the one who says, I am. Jesus endured the judgment of Pilate, stands before this man to whom he has delegated the right to judge as a leader, affirmed in Romans 12 and various other sections of Scripture, for the sake of the providence of God's people and of the church and the preservation of the church. He is standing before him in, in subjection to his judgment so that you can stand before the judgment seat of God in the last great day of his judgment and, when, and, 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 and to stand in that day of judgment without being accused. 
Jesus has endured, Jesus has endured this horrible season of questioning, of abuse, of spitting, of of being struck, of being mocked with a beautiful robe sent back to Pilate when treat after being treated with contempt, having the crown of thorns placed upon his head, bleeding profusely, being beaten with a sack over his head. Actually, he has been now whipped with a with one of those cords that the Romans were famous for that would tear away flesh and expose the entrails of one's body through the back. Jesus has been subjected to all of this. And then finally, he is handed over. All of these things Jesus willingly endured for the singular purpose so that you one day when you stand before him in the great white throne judgment, you can stand. So that you can stand boldly as one accepted of God, justified by faith through grace, one who has been counted worthy for, uh, 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 in Christ Jesus, in union with Christ your Savior, one who is no longer guilty but is forgiven, redeemed, saved, converted, holy and innocent in Christ Jesus. If Jesus didn't do this, if Jesus didn't endure, we would have no hope of standing free of guilt and sin before the judgment of God. But he endured, and he stood. In 1 Peter 2.23 it says, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And because Jesus endured and he stood there and he took and he endured all of this abuse, it was because he is the shepherd and guardian of your soul. It is because he was protecting and preserving his church, you and me. It was because he intended to bring about through his work that he would bear our sins in his body on the tree so that we might have the freedom to, to, to uh, so that we might be free of sin and its effects. We might die to sin, live to righteousness, and be raised to life in Christ Jesus. So that he would bring to effect the healing of our souls. He endured our wounds, wounds which we deserved. So Jesus, as we see him, he endured for the sake of ourselves so that we would be able to stand together in the day of judgment. The second thing that we see, the second theological proposition that this passage affirms is that Jesus is innocent. Have you seen that? Jesus is innocent. In verse 4, Pilate said to the chief priests, Pilate is not a Christian. Pilate does not have the mind of Christ. Pilate has not had the Holy Spirit work savingly in his mind, unstopping his unbelieving eyes and his ears which cannot hear. Pilate is a man deaf and dumb. Pilate is a man sold out to sin. Pilate is a man who serves himself and not God. And he sees Christ and he says one thing. He is innocent. 
This man is not guilty. He is not guilty of sin. He is not guilty of things that would call for the death of of an individual. He is not worthy of capital punishment. He says it again in verse 14 and 15. You brought this man to me as one who incites the people in rebellion, and behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. Behold, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Again, a pagan man, a man sold out to sin, enslaved to sin, a man who does not have spiritual eyes, who cannot and does not believe. But there is more. Verse 22, he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death, therefore I will punish him and release him. He is not guilty. He is guilty of nothing. He has not committed sin. But it's more than that. Matthew 27, 19. Before Pilate had ever begin to, begun to question Jesus, Pilate's wife had sent that note and said, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for he has troubled my thoughts and my dreams. You see, she has had a sleepless night. God, the Holy Spirit, has spoken to her. Perhaps she became a believer. Certainly she affirms this righteous man have nothing to do with him. Pilate is troubled. You can hear his discomfort. But it's more than just Pilate who says this. It's more than just his wife. The centurion at the cross in 23 verse 47 looks at Christ on the cross and says, Surely this man was innocent. And the thief who's on the cross, who has nothing to lose, who's a pagan as well, looks over at the other thief ridiculing Jesus and says, This man has done nothing. We are here because we are guilty. He is not guilty. Pilate is trying to avoid this. It's vital that we have a Savior who hung on that cross who was wholly innocent, undefiled. If he was in the least defiled, guilty of a single sin, the Bible says the soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. You can protest about how righteous you are and what good things you've done, but if you have committed one sin, you are subject to the wrath of, and the curse of God. The soul that sins shall die. Because God is infinitely holy and infinitely righteous. And infinitely just. It is vital that we have a, a Savior who is without blemish. And He is the Lamb without blemish and without spot. He is sinless, innocent, holy, harmless, undefiled. It's clear that he died because of this fact. It's clear that he died for the sins of others because it's so important. Luke is affirming that. He did not die because he was guilty. He did not die because he was filled with sin. He did not die because in some way he transgressed the law of God. He did not die because he was subject to, in and of himself, the wrath and curse of God. No, 
He died as an innocent man. It is affirmed before his death by all those who are about him, even the thieves on the cross, even the pagan thief on the cross and the pagan centurion and this pagan Pilate. They are all affirming his innocence. It's vital that he be innocent and holy and harmless and undefiled. In order to affirm and make clear, he died for the sins of others. He did not die as one guilty and thus subject to a righteous judgment. He died as one who took on the guilt of those who believed in him. He took on the guilt of the redeemed ones. He took on the guilt of all those for whom Christ was to die. He took on our guilt and our sin. He was counted counted to him were our sins and the punishment that was due to us. By his stripes we have been healed. And his righteousness affirmed by all of these various sources, he was without guilt. He is innocent. He has done nothing deserving of death. It's absolutely vital that we understand that his righteousness is a perfect righteousness, a holy, undefiled righteousness. And so because of that, that precisely and only is because is why you are accepted of God this morning, because of Jesus' innocence on the cross. If Jesus is innocent, and indeed he was, Every other character mentioned in this account is guilty, are they not? Pilate, the Jewish Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the scribes, all the other effectors and actors on the stage, all those who are in the crowd who are crying, crucify, crucify him. All guilty. But Jesus is innocent, undefiled, holy, blameless. And if he wasn't, and if he isn't, you are utterly hopeless. But because he is holy and innocent, undefiled, harmless, sinless, without blemish or spot, you are accepted in the beloved Son. And you are well-pleasing as he is in the Father's eyes. Thirdly, we can see the irrationality and and the, the indecency of unbelief. Can we not? Verse 25, I think, is our summary. Think about the the absolute craziness of this verse. The, the irony, the, the incredible nature of what is stated here. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. filled with rage and lust and welcoming the judgment of God in ignorance. In Matthew 27, verse 25, when Pilate proclaims his innocence yet again, they say, His blood be on us and our children. They would damn their children for the sake of having the privilege of putting Jesus to death. They are spending their children's future and eternity on this one thing. Give us freedom to condemn him and put him to death. We'll give you our children 
in order that this may be brought about. Talk about intergenerational sin and punishment. They're making an exchange between a robber, a murderer, or an insurrectionist over a sinless Savior. Don't we sing that song, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. They are singing their own alternative version. I'd rather have Barabbas, who is a robber, murderer, or insurrectionist, over a sinless Savior who can take away all my sins. And don't we see a world making that bargain continually every day? I'd rather have theft, murder, insurrection. I'd rather have all of my sins which are near and dear. I'd rather have all of my perversions, all of the darkness of sin itself, all of the depressing circumstances of a hopeless life, all the threats of an eternal judgment. I'd rather have it all than to accept an eternal, glorious, sinless, holy, harmless, undefiled, worthy Savior. One writer has said, Oh, the daring presumption of willful sinners that run upon God. Defy His justice. See what enemies wicked men are to their own children and families. Those that damn their own souls care not how many they take to hell with them. Yet on some of them and some of theirs this blood came, not to condemn them, but to save them. Divine mercy upon their repenting and believing cut off this entail and then the promise was again to them and to their children. God is better to us and ours than we are. They had decided long ago that Jesus must be, must be put to death. Envy and jealousy were behind their decision. They plotted. They carried it out. They sought false witnesses. They condemned him. They bound him, they led him away, they delivered him to Pilate. They stirred up the people to get to Barabbas, released and Jesus crucified. They intimidated Pilate. They hung him on the cross and then mocked him. He saved others, he himself he cannot save. How wicked unbelief is. Let me make a brief point or two of application here at the end from this passage. One can never be neutral with respect to Jesus. One can never be neutral with respect to the person and work of Jesus Christ. One will always take sides. Pilate attempted to not take a side, to let him go, to let him be free, to be neutral. And his attempts didn't work. C.S. Lewis, a wonderful Oxford medieval literature scholar, Popular writer, Christian apologist, former atheist, became a believer, would often make this type of argument. And this is what he said. And he said this on BBC radio in, in, in England many years ago when he lived. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. You see, isn't that a neutral position? This is what he says. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. It seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Anyone who says to you, well, I believe that Jesus was a great moral teacher, a wonderful example for us to follow, but I don't believe that he is God. They're lying to you. It's not true. You cannot be neutral about Jesus. The extraordinary nature of the things which Jesus claimed, I am the resurrection and the life. He who comes to me will never thirst. I will cause water to well up within their, their soul and they will eternally be, their, their thirst will be slaked. They will thirst no longer. I am the bread of life. No one lives by bread alone, but lives rather by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I am. In full and direct affirmation of who he was as God. God eternal. The one who spoke to Moses out of the bush. I am sent you. He proclaimed, I and the Father are one. Even if you die, he who dies will live. You will live in me. He made other claims. I will be raised after three days. Extraordinary things that Jesus claimed, but also extraordinary things which Jesus did. And you cannot be neutral about him. You must either believe that he is the eternal son of God, or you must alternatively and only... It's the only other thing that you can affirm is that he was, in fact, false about his claims. You cannot say in some way, in a neutral way, that he was a good man. Good men and women do not claim divinity. Good men and women do not say that they and God are one being. Secondly, you and I, we, we need not lose heart when we experience difficulties and trials. You say, well, what, what does, how does that come to me? Well, in Hebrews 12:3 it says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We are to look at the sufferings of Christ Grieve over the sinful condition of mankind, but take heart because Christ endured such hostility, suffering, so that you and I need not grow so weary, so faint-hearted that we give up hope. Christ died for us. Christ died for you. He died for me. If he endured such hostility... We need not ultimately lose hope because he endured that for us. 
We are also to approach suffering and difficulty in this way. Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If he did that, if he endured that, should we not take heart? Should we not follow his example and willingly endure suffering? Thirdly and finally, Jesus suffered for us. J.C. Ryle in his wonderful books on the Gospels says this, We observe in this passage the remarkable circumstances connected with the release of Barabbas. We are told that Pilate released Barabbas, the man in prison, for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus over to them to do as they wished. Two people were before him, and he released one of the two. The one was a sinner against God and man, a malefactor stained with many crimes. The other was the most holy, harmless, undefiled son of God, in whom there was no fault at all. And yet Pilate condemned the innocent prisoner, and he acquits the guilty. There is a deep meaning underneath these circumstances before us, and we must not fail to observe it. The whole transaction is a lively emblem of that wondrous exchange that takes place between Christ and the sinner. When a sinner is justified in the sight of God, Christ has been made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ the innocent has been reckoned guilty before God, that we the guilty might be reckoned innocent and be set free from condemnation. If we are true Christians, let us daily lean our souls on the comfortable thought that Christ really has been our substitute and has been punished in our stead. Let us freely confess that like Barabbas, we deserve death and judgment and hell, but let us cling firmly to the glorious truth that a sinless Savior has suffered in our stead and that believing in him, the guilty go free. Praise God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for that culminating word from Mr. Ryle. What a blessing. We, the guilty, have gone free because we are in Christ. And he, the the one who is not guilty, was punished in our stead. We thank you for this extraordinary transaction Christ takes our guilt and we are have given to us his righteousness. What an extraordinary exchange to be justified by grace through faith. Oh Lord, we give thanks. We ask that those who do not know Christ would come to a saving knowledge of Christ, that our loved ones would come to that conclusion that they They are the guilty ones, guilty before God, but that God has provided a free and innocent Savior. One who will be counted guilty in our stead if only we believe. Who will have our sins transferred to him for which he has has already made payment. And if we only believe we are innocent in Christ, counted innocent, counted free, and sinless 
Our sins, O God, will be cast behind your back. You will know them no more. And Christ's righteousness will be imputed to us. We rejoice in this possibility and this offering that has been made to all in sincerity, to all who would believe. We ask that many would come to faith in Christ today. Glorify your word. Glorify the Son of God in bringing many to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Come, O God, and bring this glorious work to fruition and hasten the day when Christ comes and all who have been destined unto everlasting life have been saved and we will depart with him into everlasting glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take up our hymnal and sing together in, well, in Christ alone, number 265.